When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma Yay! trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher. Thanks again for coming back to the James Altucher Show. And I'm here with another special guest, Wendy Simmons. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Wendy, I'm going to explain why you're special. It's because you just got back from North Korea, and it's the first time I've ever spoken to anyone who actually has even been to North Korea, let alone just got back from there. And so... <laughs> And what's what's weird about that is North Korea actually didn't they just put in prison two American tourists? They did, yes. Yeah. And so that's still there, scary. Actually. Like when I heard, like I've known you, so I, when I heard you were going to North Korea, I was scared. Particularly, it was right around the time North Korea also announced they were declaring war on the U.S. because of that movie Seth Rogen is going to be in. It actually is funny because the first morning when I woke up in Pyongyang, um, they happened to have, strangely, um, television in my room that wasn't just North Korean programming. There was uh, BBC, and BBC, the very first morning, was doing the story on uh, North Korea declaring war because of that movie. And I couldn't believe that I was watching this news report that North Korea was declaring war on America because of James Franco. But in the middle of the story, it went to black. They blocked it out. So I wasn't sure exactly the outcome of that. Wow. So, okay. So so that's a story right there. But we're going to get to many more of those in a second. But it's, it's like you were in Nazi Germany the day they invaded Poland. Yeah. And actually, the funniest part was the day I arrived on the 25th, the, probably the third thing my one of my handlers said to me with this giant smile was, um, did I know what day it was? And uh, I said June 25th, and she smiled and said, yes, it's the day that the American imperialists declared war on Korea. So it was, a, you know, a banner start from the, from the get-go. So you were really, you're really welcomed with open arms there. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so, they're, they're big fans of America. So I want to talk about a couple of things. One is, um, you know, obviously what's, going, what's really going on in North Korea because we hardly ever get any insight into what really happens there. Like it, it's one of those few countries where it's like there's this, an entire black box around it and we have no idea what goes in and what goes out. But you've, you've seen and, and taken photographs and the whole thing. The second is I really want to get into uh, – I'm fascinated by why you wanted to go there and kind of your philosophy. Like you've basically managed to – have a full-time job. In fact, you run a company, and you've basically been able to fashion your life over the years so you can travel as frequently as you wanted, and you keep you keep kind of heightening the bar about where you go. Like, it's, it's bad enough you go to places where everyone's getting killed and malaria or whatever in, in Africa, but then you decided, you know what, I'm just going to go to the worst country in the world and hang out there while they declare war in America. Well, that was just bad timing. I didn't. I don't think me. there's a good. I think it's like having a baby. Like there's, it's always bad timing. Like well, going to North Korea is just never really that great timing. You know, I, and I didn't really fully understand. Not to sound totally naive, um, to the extent to which North Korea was a, a bad place. I, you know, I didn't take it that seriously. If not to sound stupid, but. Um, I didn't do a lot of research on North Korea. I don't really research a lot of places I go before I arrive because I don't want to have preconceived ideas about where I'm going. And most of what I had heard about North Korea, you know, comes from the U.S. media. And it sounded 
like it was going to be, you know, obviously different and weird and everything else. But I, I never really took that seriously, um, the the danger of it. It didn't feel like it was going to be dangerous. And I didn't well, you know, sort of- it's funny because even my, even in my notes before um, this interview, I, I decided, look, I'm gonna everything I know about North Korea obviously comes from. I don't know whether to call it American news or a propaganda machine or whatever. I'm not even being cynical, but I didn't want to be biased either going into this interview. Like, we honestly really don't know what's going on there, and it could be good and it could be bad, and, and we don't know. So so what made you decide specifically there? Because I know you're on a quest to go to essentially every country in the world. Why did you decide to go to North Korea? And also, it's not as if— they are have welcome arms to American tourists. Like you're one of the only American U.S. tourists this year to go to North Korea. Uh, how did you get in? Uh, I went through a group called Korea Tours that's based in um, Beijing, and they help you work with um, KITC, which is the internal government group that um, helps or organizes for tourists across the board to come into North Korea. So you cannot just go to North Korea, obviously. The, the people who have tried that have all been arrested. You mean so Jews? The, I'm sorry? You mean me, as in me, as like Jews, can't go to North Korea? No, no. I mean, anybody on the planet cannot just show up in North Korea as a tourist. You have they'll, to they'll, have a they'll visa. They'll just turn and you away. Issue, yeah, and that's what happened if you remember Lisa Ling's sister and that other reporter. I think they went over the border and were arrested. So you have to go through KITC, and um, in order to be granted a visa, you have to declare your itinerary ahead of time. Um, you know, you're met by handlers at the airport. It's completely structured. Everything is orchestrated by the hour. So there's no such thing as being a free-roaming tourist there. And, so, so, um, so let me ask you, you went to mm-hmm. this kind of Korea tourist thing in, in Beijing. They went through KITC, and then they had to get you a special visa, or what happened? Yeah, you have to get a visa, and I so I went to Beijing to get my visa, and then and flew from Beijing to Pyongyang. What if you flew to Beijing and they said you can't get a visa? Like, was that is that possible? I guess it's possible, but the company you know that I was working with ahead of time felt reasonably confident it would be no problem. So that's why I went. And why don't more people? do that like it does seem like an interesting place to go like why don't more u.s tourists do that or or is there a real quota on how many they let in i don't know you know whether there's a quota or not it's very hard to get answers like that but you know i don't more people go I, probably they're smarter than me you know and listen to warnings or they don't have the interest it's not a pleasant trip but you know i have a real curiosity to see everything and um you know, there's this is like Pager. This is one of the few places on the planet that really stands apart from everywhere else. There's, it's just completely different than any place I've ever been before. So, really, and you've you know, been I, to list some of the countries you've been that that would also seem completely different to most people. I mean, I think Bhutan was incredibly different. India, you know, I'm very used to it now. I've been there many times, but for most people who have never left America, they would find that to be incredibly different than what they're used to. Most countries in Africa, you know, Congo, certainly, uh, both DRC, NROC, Uganda. I mean, most most places outside of Europe are very different. Asia, even places in Europe, depending on your level of sophistication from a traveling standpoint, you're going to find to be different. But and, North but, Korea but, is different and, in so many ways. So North Korea just, like, topped all of these. Like, on a scale of, like, 1 to 10, you know, North Korea is a 10 in difference. It is, and it's not just—it's not— Physically, it's it's different. You know, when you arrive in Pyongyang, it's not that the buildings look so different or, you know, the, ostensibly and immediately, you don't necessarily think it's that different. It's just once you're spending time there and you start to really understand how different it is, it's, it's, it's I mean, in every single way, it's completely the opposite of everything we know. Okay, you well, know, so, so you landed there, and were there a lot of people on the plane, like all these North Koreans doing business no. in China or— no, and you could, by the way, you can always tell someone's from North Korea because they're required to wear a pin on their clothing of the two great leaders. So it's easy to identify a Korean. It's required by law. I think you immediately go to jail or work camp if you don't have your pin on. So on the plane from What if you um, lose the China, pin? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I asked my one of my handlers one day trying to get to the bottom of what would happen if you didn't put the pin on. 
And, you know, I asked her, what if your house was on fire and you had to run out and you couldn't find your pin? And she literally looked at me and said, I don't know such a day. I mean, it's just inconceivable that you wouldn't have your pin on. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so you're on, on the, the plane, plane and how many no, people were on the plane? There were people. Uh, maybe 12, 15. And I was the only person who, you know, was American, obviously. Everybody so when was we landed in Pyongyang, or... I got in the regular line, and all of these people were pointing me to the diplomatic line. Like, they didn't understand that I was not a diplomat coming into the country. Huh. Yeah. And did you go and... on the diplomatic line, or did you stay on the regular line? No. I stayed in the regular line. I was a regular person. <laughs> I would take advantage of every everything. They're pointing. <laughs> no. That's, it's one of those countries you want to play by the rules. Um, okay, so so you're on the plane, and is everybody pointing at you still? <laughs> no, I mean, there was a level of curiosity about why I was there. Certainly. I mean, I'm sorry I'm asking, like, such stupid questions. Normally I wouldn't ask, like, what the food was like on the plane, but what was the food like on the plane? Um, I'm trying to remember back that far. I think that at that point it was normal food. I flew on China Air, so it was, you know, your typical not great food. Okay, so 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 you land didn't and really kick in until I got there. You land in the capital of North Korea. Are you ge- greeted at the gate like they're not letting you out of your their sight? No, actually, that's probably the most freedom I ever had. I was allowed to get off the plane by myself. I mean, at the bottom of the stairs, there's all types of people standing there, and the airport itself is probably only you know twenty feet away. But I was allowed to walk into the airport by myself and queue up. And go through, but the immediate um, on the immediate side of immigration, right away, there's all the guards, and they take your cell phone, and it all begins. And then, right after you go through the security, and they take your cell phone and everything else, then your your handlers are there, and you are never apart from your handlers again, unless you're asleep in your room. Oh, okay. So everything leads to a question. One is, uh, they took your cell phone for the entire trip, like you weren't allowed to make any no. phone calls. Well, no, they used to. Now they give it back. And again, it's everything there is so funny to me. You know, they take your cell phone to examine your cell phone. But like most people with an iPhone, you have a password you have to put in. So they had my cell phone for 10 minutes. I don't know what they're doing with it since they can't access anything on it. So they didn't have my password. But yet they took my cell phone and examined it. And everything in North Korea is a thousand years old. You know, they have nothing since 1950. So all the X-ray machines are old. My bag has got stuck in the machine. You know, it's it's a shit show. The whole thing. So you come through, and then your handlers are there. Your bags are given to you. I have no idea what they did with my cell phone. And off you go. And they don't hand your cell phone back to you. No, they do. They give it back to you. Now they okay. do, and you're allowed to use it. But there's no internet. There's no, you know, service. You could get a local chip if you wanted, but there's no one to call, so what's the point? And um, uh, they keep, you're allowed to keep your camera? You're allowed to keep your camera, but that's all the new regulations, which are in the past few years, of being able to bring a camera and the cell phone and so forth. But everything you're allowed to take a photo of is very controlled. Okay, so your handlers, you, you mentioned plural. Is it like two women, two men, a man and a woman? It depends on, you know, whoever is assigned to. In my case, I had two women and then my driver, and we were together literally at all times. And then any place you go in North Korea to visit, there's a local handler as well, a local guide. So, Do you ever feel, do you, you ever feel like your so, handlers kind of let down the wall, like, uh, uh, like they were actually being honest with you, or were they always kind of tightly controlled in how they talk to you? That's the million-dollar question. You know, I thought about that constantly. There was moments— when I thought I'd be bonding with them or that I'd be breaking through and, and it would disappear, you know, that moment would just evaporate. And, you know, I couldn't tell if it was because, you know, as a guide, they're seeing more of the real world and starting to have emotions of jealousy or desire, you know, or questioning their own lives. And when they let their guard down, it made them feel too vulnerable or, if letting their guard down was their way of pretending to bond and that made them, you know, more, ex- made it more easy for them to control us or, you know, there's just, it's a, a, a cauldron of emotions and thoughts that go through your brain. But, you know, I started keeping a list um, of things I thought, it's actually called shit, I think might be realist. 
And there was a couple of moments with either of the handlers where things happened that I thought were making us have a relationship. But like, like what? You know, for, um, for example, um, at one point I had seen you know, enough of the anti-American propaganda to last a lifetime, and they wanted to take me to another museum. At one, and I had said, you know what, let's skip it. I've had enough. I get it. America did this and the other. And the younger handler sort of giggled to herself because I was making fun of the whole thing. And the other handler, the older one, shot her a look, and the younger handler, like, shut up really quickly. Things like that, you know, where you just catch uh. these seconds between them and – um, you know, or at the, I, they took me to a football game, which, by the way, I think was completely staged. And um, the one team that the older handler was rooting for missed the goal, and she screamed, damn it. And um, it was, like, actually correct the way she said it. And I looked at her, and I said, did you just say damn it? And then she, you know, covered her mouth and felt, like, a little bit shy about it. But in that moment when she screamed, damn it, it was like a real emotion, you know, that kind of thing. And Really? Because, like, damn it translates to Korean? <laughs> well, I, no, she literally said the word damn it. Her husband, my older handler, she told me on, like, the sixth or seventh day was a diplomat, a, um, a North Korean diplomat. So she so, so these handlers her. actually, it could be that they were legit in the sense that they probably had pretty good lives compared to uh, what I understand to be the average North Korean life. I mean, they probably had no problems with food. They had pretty high positions. They were dealing with interesting people. It probably is not so bad to be a North Korean handler. I don't think anyone has a great life there, but they certainly have the best life. If you live in Pyongyang, you're in the top of the top. I mean, and they are, the, they have the best life, but they've also been identified as being the most loyal party members. You know, there's no way you're in that job interacting with foreigners unless the party thinks that you are completely loyal and will toe the line. There's no way otherwise that you're speaking to anyone. There's no way. I see. So they, do, so, and look, it may or may not be true. I'm not saying anything about America or imperialism or anything, but they truly believed that uh, America was kind of this imperialist, fascist society or whatever. They want that their society was better. That um, the people are taught, whether they believe it or not, it's a different question, but the people are inculcated from literally from the time they can understand that American imperialism is the cause of all problems in their country, that Americans started the war, that Americans caused the Great Famine, that American sanctions now are the reason why they're suffering in any capacity, that um, our politics are the root of all evil. Well, is it true? I mean, we do have a lot of sanctions against them, which probably prevent them from getting food and, and other re medicines and other resources. Like, did you ever get a sense that it was really true? I mean, I think there's truth in everything, but not in an absolute way. Their government is their their worst enemy. I mean, the great leaders that they revere as God, um, you know, power in any totalitarian environment is is by nature corrupt. I mean, it's the most corrupt environment. They the, the government there controls every aspect of every part of their lives. Whatever class you're born into, you're stuck in. There's no very little chance of advancement unless you are superior in some way. So, for instance, yeah. like farmers stay farmers, uh, city people stay city people, businessmen stay businessmen, and so on. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, what are what are the other examples of corruption you saw? Or and then I should really let you kind of tell kind of the the day by day what happened. But what what what's like the most extreme example of corruption you saw? Well, I mean, it's, I don't know if you call it corruption or just their life. Like the government decides what job you will have, where you live, who you are, everything. I mean, there's, they just don't have control of their lives. It is the most extreme form of totalitarianism, Stalinism, every ism that is negative rolled into one. It's and, just and insane. Well, like you gave an example, like, and I saw your photo. You had a photo of a huge stadium, uh, and you said that um, there was a, a football game or a soccer game or whatever that happened there, and it was on a Monday at 9 a.m., which is an odd time for a game. Uh, what, why do you think it was staged? How was it staged? How many people were there? So, again, this is the part where you struggle the whole time you're there between imagining that um, things are going on. Is this real? Is this, am I crazy? Who's the crazy one here? So 
on the day before, and they have, you have to understand first that every single hour of the day that you are there is, is scheduled. And when there is any interruption in the schedule, everyone goes bad. It's, you know, like a meltdown is occurring. But like so, when did that happen? You know, if um, they'll tell you something's been canceled and you don't know the reason why and everyone panics. Or you show up someplace and the guard that's supposed to open the gate isn't sitting there. It's like um, a nuclear meltdown is occurring. Like everything is to the minute, amazingly perfectly scheduled. There can be no mistakes. If you show up someplace and somebody is sitting down, they jump up like their seat is on fire. Like it is perfectly orchestrated and staged. Because are they trying to send the message that things are not so bad, everything runs like clockwork here? Everything works like clockwork, everything is perfect. If you see something that is messed up or, you know, and you ask, they just won't even answer you. It's like they pretend it's not happening. Or when you're driving down the U.S. Hero Highway, which is this piece of shit highway that all the men went blind on, and, you know, there are crazy things happening on both sides of the road. My handler would just try talking to me the whole time so I couldn't look out the window. What, what crazy things? Like, and again, so I've been to India, and, you, and there's crazy things happening on both sides of the road when you, when you drive around there. Like, what's crazier than that? Well, the thing about India, though, that's different is these people have free will to some extent. You know, you see them. It's crazy. They're carrying water. They're crapping on the side of the road. They're showering on the side of the road. But they're living their lives. They may be impoverished or, you know, they may be being treated poorly because of the caste system. But they're, they have free will. There's no free will in North Korea. That's, I think, the difference. When you say, though, you're driving down the road and you see crazy things on either side of the road, what, what, what does it mean? Well, for example, on the Euthero Highway, for almost the entire length of it on either side, were just hundreds and thousands of men cutting down trees. And they have no tools. There's no modern tools that I saw. So they're cutting down trees with saws, you know, like the kind of saw that you would use to cut a piece of wood in your house. Hmm. Hundreds of thousands of men just cutting down trees with saws. As opposed to a a chainsaw or something. No, no, there's no chainsaws, no power tools. There's no power tools. So they're just cutting down, and and everyone's in uniforms. So it's hundreds of thousands of people in military uniforms or uniforms of some kind or in clothes from the 1950s that look like from the 1950s, and they're using literally saws. You know, the kind of saws like where two men hold either side and they just saw the and because it's this giant highway with no lines and it's like unpaved, kind of looks like it's paved, but it looks like a blacktop. And there's no cars in North Korea. So when they're sawing down thousands and thousands of trees on either side of the highway, all the trees are just flopping into the middle of the highway because it doesn't matter because there's no cars. We're the only So, cars. so you were like <laughs> the only car driving on this highway? Yeah, us and like a couple of other tourist cars and, you know, some diplomats or important people who are in cars. And where's where's everybody else? Like, how's so so Pyongyang or whatever is a city? So how are people getting around, living there? Is it all on bicycles or? Yeah, well, I'm, from what I understand, only only special people are allowed to have bicycles, but that's more they're much more common now. So in Pyongyang, there's cars. Outside of Pyongyang, you barely ever see a car. If you do, it's someone important, and um, you know you're not allowed to travel. You, again, you have no free will. So you're not allowed to go to Pyongyang unless you're special or you're given permission to go there for some reason. And you're not allowed to leave Pyongyang unless you have a reason and you have a travel permit and so forth. So right when you go to How do you know that? Like, did someone someone from outside the city tell you they can't go without permission? Like, how did you know that you're not allowed to go in there? Well, my handlers explained this to me. So, like, when we stop at the checkpoint and they have to show all their documents and they're scrutinized by the guards and I— ask the question, and this happens a few times, you know, it takes, the whole thing in, in North Korea is you have to tease out information. So you keep asking sort of the same questions, and you make inferences, and you start to piece things together, and eventually you, you start to get the picture. And, you know, I'm not dumb. It's, it's not that hard to put things together. And then since I've been home, I've been reading more online and understanding from other people who have had the exact same experiences. And you you know you start to make sense of it all. So so okay so let's get back to the um, the soccer match. So it's nine a.m. Monday morning, and for yeah, some well, reason yeah. So it started the day before. So late in the afternoon, they told me that um, my visit to I can't remember the name of it, months today or something, which is where um, the leaders are entombed. I cannot go there. It's closed for some reason. 
So, uh, which was annoying because I brought my fancy clothes just for that, and because you have to dress up for that. Uh, why did you bring your fancy clothes? Did you think you were going to meet they the leaders? No, no, no. He's dead. But you, when you go there, you have to dress up. Anytime you go to a statue, any place you go in the entire country, even if it's in the middle of nowhere, there is a giant, huge statue of the dead leaders, and you have to walk up to it and bow. And then, and you have to take your sunglasses off and show respect and bow a certain way and all this stuff. So um, this one particular monument in Pyongyang is the super special one because he's entombed there like Stalin, and you have to um, wear special clothes or fancier clothes. So they tell me in the afternoon that it's closed and we can't go, and what do I want to do instead? And they, this is, you know, uh, maybe five or six days into the trip, and I've, I'm, like, monumented out. I've seen every imperialist pig exhibit and everything else. So... Um, they are listing all these activities, and I've been to the fun fair, and I've done all the stuff. And she happens upon, um, I'm saying no, 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 no. And she kind of says football because we've been talking about the World Cup. And I said, sure, that sounds great. And her face kind of fell like this is not her first choice at all. And this was at maybe 4 in the afternoon. And she then asked me many times, am I sure, am I sure, am I sure? And eventually you know, realized I was pretty sure. Then a flurry of phone calls, discussions. There's always a lot of um, phone calls and discussions when anything changes. And uh, a couple of hours later, she calls, tells me, oh, I'm so lucky because there's a football game tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., which is exactly the time slot that I had to fill. So, you know, again, maybe it's completely I'm lucky and this was just coincidence. It feels like an absurd thought that they would put an entire football game together for me. It just it seems completely unreasonable that this would occur. But it also felt like crazy that there would suddenly be a 9 a.m. football game on a Monday. Yeah, a 9 a.m. on a Monday. And these are professional athletes or kids or what? Yeah, no, this was the two big domestic teams, the a light industry and the river arm mocks. So and and, and we, how big – how. Uh, the stadium looked pretty big in your photo that I saw on, on Facebook. Like, was it full? No, it's completely empty. So it was it's the Pyongyang Stadium. It's the main stadium in Pyongyang. It's huge. It's a regular-sized stadium. And when we arrived, of course, you pull into the parking lot. There's not a single car because there's no cars. And we go to the VIP entrance, which is, like, everything in North Korea, dimly lit. There's no – anything that can be turned on is not turned on. The electricity is scarce. So basically and, they turned uh, on this whole stadium for, for one single tourist. I don't know. I really don't know the answer. It sure felt like it. So, um, I mean, this is the kind of thing that will happen. We go in the VIP area, um, and I have to wait at the bottom of the escalator while all sorts of discussions are being had just out of earshot. And then eventually a whole posse of people come to escort me to my seat, which is a folding chair, and um, the elevator won't turn on. So there's like a whole show and all these discussions. And I ask, why can't we just walk up the escalator? You know, like a short one. Discussions, discussions, discussions. And eventually they get the elevator turned on for, I'm, I'm not kidding, 20 seconds. Just so that can vary, you know, the six of us to the top. It's, it's like a 10-step escalator. And then the escalator is turned off. And, you know, you walk every any place where lights can be on, the lights are not on. Or only half of them are on or half of them are burned out. And we come into the stadium, and they tell me as we're walking into the stadium that they're so sorry um, that I won't be able to see very many normal people because it's a work day. Because they know that you want to see normal people so you can take pictures and stuff. So that's, like, the big thing they always are trying to arrange for you to see normal people, quote, unquote. Right. So we went into the stadium, and, um, you know, I don't know, there was maybe, I'm terrible at estimating numbers, a couple hundred people, if that, and me, and, the, and a general. But the weird thing was, halfway through the game, at the second uh, half, uh, maybe a couple hundred more people came in. But it's nothing is um, how it sounds. So when people arrive someplace, they arrive in, like, swarms. So there's also a picture I put on my website that shows us at the fun fair, which is an amusement park. So when I arrived at the amusement park, there was no one there, literally no one there. And then um, all of a sudden, this huge swarm of people arrived. And they arrive generally, they'll be in lines, um, like five or six across, and there'll be several hundred of them. 
So, so do, do you think? Asked, do you think? Do you think there's like a a group of like a thousand people whose job is essentially to be um, roving actors for tourists, and they try to no. kind of rotate through them through every event? I didn't. You know, these are people with no power tools. Like I just, it, that's the paradox. Like it just seems too unfathomable and too organized for it to occur that way. But at the same time, there's. The people are, you know, belong to the government. So it's completely also feasible at the same time that the government could just say, you know, you 5,000 people come now to the stadium. Because because you were there. Literally. As crazy as it sounds, that's how f***ed up this country is. And, and, so, who, and who won the soccer game? The team I was rooting for, yet another victory for the American imperialists. <laughs> So there you go. And were, were your the, handlers on their side too? No, they rooted for the other team. <laughs> Did you guys argue about it? No. Well, my one handler, the older handler, who was the more strict one, she slept through the whole game. And the younger one, who they called the fresh, she was fresh, they would call her, meaning that she was new at her job. She was actually very enthusiastic. She shrieked and rooted along with me. I taught her how to smack talk. It was kind of fun. Huh. So, so you bonded a little? Engaged. We did. We bonded a little. I I kept thinking to myself I could probably turn her if I needed to after a few <laughs> few weeks. See, you were so. you were CIA undercover. Yeah, there you go. Homeland. <laughs> yes, I was on a special mission for the United States. So, but so, so, you know, the thing is, every place you go there, they this is another thing you notice. You know, every place you go, the very first thing they'll tell you is how big it is and how long it took to build. And it always took no time at all to build. So they'll say to you, this is 800,000 square feet, and it took us one month to build it. And in the beginning, you're being polite, and you say, wow, that's impressive. You know? And then you start to realize there's absolutely no way that's possible because you have no tools. There's no tools and no electricity. There's, it's impossible that you built this you know, 30-story building in a month. And then the other part of your brain starts to kick in midway through that says, actually, it's not entirely unlikely because this is a country that can just say, you 300,000 people are going to do nothing for the next 30 days but build this building. And we don't care how many of you die doing it. So, you know, that's the, that's the conundrum. It's, everything can possibly be true or you could just be completely crazy paranoid making yourself crazy. And was there any point where you saw, like, a crowd, like a big crowd, like, just wandering yeah, but around? always, no. You know, a crowd always occurs. So, as I said, like, when I went to, when they took me to the fun fair, which is their amusement park, um, you know, there was no one there, and then suddenly a crowd occurs. So they Like, they just show up. Is it because maybe you got up. there before it opened and then it opened, or no? Um... I, I, you know, I don't know the answer. I really don't. I think that they have to have people at the fun fair. That's what normal people do, right? It's go to the amusement park. But they all show up in uniforms and then their fancy clothes. It's not like, you know, after work, all the people are in their casual clothes and come to the fun fair. It just doesn't happen that way. Um, were there kids at the fun fair? Uh, no, it was mainly adults. There was a couple, but it was so, mainly, you know, grown so amusement people. I have park a picture, no again, kids. like of all military people. Like, basically, an amusement park for, like, generals. <laughs> That's kind of, yeah, sort of. So when I asked, you know, why are they all in uniforms? Is it, like, a company trip? Is it, you know, a benefit for the workers? They would just say yes. So I kind of learned also to stop suggesting for them what things might be. And if I didn't do that, I could get more information. And and what's an example where you got more information? Well, towards the end of the trip, I stopped talking which made them kind of crazy. So in the beginning, I would ask more questions and I would get nowhere or I would get inane answers. And then, you know, as you start to get more familiar with one another and find each other more annoying, um, I just, I really, I stopped talking. There was like a few days I was too annoyed and I was worried that I'd say something stupid. I'd already told them I felt like I was in prison and a few other remarks. And um, so I, I just kind of stopped talking and it literally made them crazy. They, they didn't really, they weren't trained to handle someone not asking questions. They're like, they're trained to handle a lot of questions, but they're not trained to handle, or at least mine weren't, 
someone who doesn't ask anything. So they started kind of over-talking. And, and that's what when they, they would, you know, they just would contradict themselves a little bit about, you know, why people were doing what they were doing or it's, I mean, it's hard to, to not give you something like a specific answer to a question, but their answers would change a little bit every time I asked. That's why I'm saying like the more I asked kinds of questions in different environments, the different answers would emerge. You know, that's why when they give you psychological tests, at the CIA, for example, you know, they all ask the same question 10 different ways, 20, 20 uh, pages apart, because that's how you, you know, tease out information from people. No, wait can't a remember second. Exactly how do you said. know that? Because <laughs> I've read about it. Did you ever apply for the CIA? No. All right. Well, we'll take that at face value. <laughs> um, so, so. Uh, like, did you ever go to kind of like a, a business area or, you know, where where, where industry was happening? Uh, no, but I saw a factory um, from the car. I saw a couple of factories from the car one day when we were driving to Mount Myeonghang and my handlers were asleep. So I took a picture with my cell phone because I had my headphones plugged in so you couldn't hear the camera snap. So I saw that one factory that was belching out smoke that was working. Um, but that was the only one that I saw. And what about in a store? Like, what happens in a supermarket or a deli or whatever? They don't have them. So that was the other weird thing. So I kept asking questions like, where do you buy food? Where are the stores? Can you show me a store? You know, when, when do you, you know, do you go to the market? Do you walk up and down the aisle? Like the kind of questions that you would ask somebody if you went to Mars and were trying to understand how their world works. And they would give me answers like, of course we go to the store. Yes, I walk up and down an aisle. You know, but it's not true. They, that's not how it works. So, you know, occasionally you would see a store. I took a picture, for example, of one, and it's, they're empty, or they would just have a few things for show. And what I kind of started to understand is you, they would go in um, if they have a store in, in Pyongyang, and you ask for what you want from what they have, and they would hand it to you. But they don't have, like, a grocery store, for example, like what you would think of here in the United States. There's no such thing. So how do most people get, I, like, food? Well, now from what I've read and understand, I, I think they have rations. I think they're assigned food. And so somebody and goes around on, and delivers the food? I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know exactly how it works. I mean, from what I've read... You're, you go to a food center and you're handed food based on your rank, your job, and all those kinds of things. And during the famine, it was really, really bad. Obviously, millions of people died, but, um, or hundreds of thousands, but that it's still somewhat done that way. That, like, they don't just go to the market. And, and did they ever let you just kind of talk to somebody in the street? Or, or yeah. they didn't speak English, I guess, the people in the street? They wouldn't talk to you anyways. Nobody will talk to you. People Why is that? Because they're afraid that they're uh, collaborating with you somehow? Yeah, I think people are scared. They don't like you. Also, you have to understand, they don't like you. They don't like you. I mean, they'll say, we don't like your, we like you, just not your government or your politics or your country, but it's not you. But they don't like you. You know, when I was in the Juche Tower, it's that, it's that big tower that for the Juche Monument in Pyongyang, and the elevator woman, um, said something, I showed her a picture of New York that I had on my phone, and she gave me the nastiest look, and, and we were kind of trying to talk. And, um, you know, she just was not having it. Like, she truly hates America. It's one of the few places that I've ever been where everyone really does hate you. Is it because like, they think that you. America has, like, hoarded all the riches of the world and prevented them from having it, or or – you know, they were jealous in some way, or what What do you think it was? I think it's all those things, and, um, you know, I think, like, for example, there's in, um, in Pyongyang or in any hotel, you're, when you're not allowed to go outside of the hotel by yourself. So when you're deposited back in the hotel in the night or, you know, at the end of the day, that's it. You're in for the night. It's illegal to go out of the hotel. If you go out, I mean, people do, I guess, but if you go out and you're caught, it's, you're in trouble. So um, I had said to my handler, you know, why don't they just put a bench outside right in front where the guards are so you can get fresh air? And her answer was because naughty Americans will use this information to say bad things about our country. So we can't have a bench until the unification of our country. I mean, that's like the kind of thing they tell you. Well, because so if you just, are on a bench, 
you might see yeah. something? Yeah. What if the bench is facing backwards towards the hotel? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so, that's so the like, thing I So, like, asked, if you were in your hotel and you left your room uh, and you went downstairs, would people kind of say, stop? No, you were allowed to wander in the hotel. And what if you left the hotel? What would happen? I don't know. I didn't. But you're not supposed to. I mean, I think they'd probably stop you on your way out first. So they would basically and, say, wait until a handler arrives and they would call somebody. I don't know. I didn't do it. I mean, I didn't want to go to jail. So the thing is, I'm normally like very adventurous and flaunt the law and don't, you know, pay that much attention to no, answer, you know, no or you can't or it's impossible. I think those are all absurd. But there was a moment in time on this trip when I, I profoundly understood that I could never leave this country if they didn't want me to. What was and, that moment? You know, um, on, like how you started this whole conversation by saying, you know, it's a horrible country and weren't you scared and all those things. And I said I didn't take it seriously, and I just didn't because I really thought it was going to be funnier. And, you know, they had my passport, and um, I'm usually so careful about my passport. And it was like on the fifth day they hadn't given it back, and I was kind of upset about it. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me it didn't matter. Even if I had my passport, I could never get out. Like I literally could never leave that country. Ever, but did, ever, but did ever, they ever threaten you with anything? No. So but it they never matter. gave you the implication you that if you do this, you might get in trouble. Oh no, they told you that all the time. They told you all the time. Don't take a photo; it's not good. Or don't do that. You know, or uh, you know, she would shake her head and make a motion like, "Don't do that." Or you know, when we come up to um, a checkpoint, she would always make me put my camera in my bag and put the bag on the floor, you know, things like that. Like, you know, they would indicate to me when I should definitely not do something, like that it was not a good idea. And but it's not like they would say, you're going to jail, because they don't acknowledge there is jail. So so what about, like, kids? Did you interact with kids at all? I saw one picture that you took of kids playing, like, in a, some musical instruments. Yeah, well, that was at the Children's Palace, which is a whole other thing. It's just this crazy place. But, um you know, I, I love kids. I take a million photographs of children all over the world, and I've always found children to be, you know, the truth of a country, no matter what's going on politically or in any other way in, in a country. That's where you always can find, like, the soul of the country. And in Korea, that was um, – it happened once where I had, like, a genuine interaction with the children, maybe twice. But even the children are, um, for the most part – you don't connect with them either. And um, it happened one time in, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember which place it was. I'll have to think of it. This isn't Kaisong, but someplace. There was a young group, a big group of children on a field trip. And they were young enough that they weren't young pioneers yet, which is like the first workers' party that they joined when they're five, I think. So they were younger than that. They were quite young. And they were so excited to see me, not me personally, but just the tourist. And so they had waited at the bottom of this hill for me to come down. And when I did, they were, like, clapping and cheering and um, surrounding me. And I took some really cute pictures of them with me. And that was, you know, and they followed me. And it was really the only moment that um, any of the children, and you see hundreds of thousands of children. There, I think it's 30% of the population, my handler told me. Um, uh, that was the only time during the trip that children actually like acted like children around me. Generally, the children are just as sort of, um, you know, walled off as the rest of the population. They don't look well, at you. They don't smile. And do you feel like it's acted? Like, for instance, when they were playing the, uh, you know, music for you, uh, was there any chance for interaction there? Or Oh, no, no. The Children's Palace is part of the propaganda tour. It's... um. So the Children's Palace, they, they're the whole Juche philosophy, they talk about the children are our future, which is like some, somewhat self-evident if you ask me. But so, um, but the, it's all about the children are our future. But, and what they mean by that is who, that's who's going to carry on the party tradition and, um, you know, who is going to continue the rhetoric and everything else. So um, they have these giant children's palaces. There's two in Pyongyang and one in Kaesong and I think one someplace else. They're the most um, elaborate and largest buildings in, in the towns, and um, basically the uh, this is one of those instances where I kept getting different answers um, every time I tried to ask. So I went to several children's palaces, 
and eventually I sort of understood it to be what it was. So what they are is that the most privileged children uh, go there after school or instead of school. And if you live um, outside of Pyongyang or Kaisong and you're not privileged, there's a chance maybe you can go there if they come to um, your village and they see that you're a prodigy and they pluck you. But then you're like taken from your family and sent there which can be good because it can elevate your status. But if you're from a family where they don't want you to leave, then it's basically like they take your child away. And you go to this children's palace. You're assigned what your skill is based on what they've identified. So maybe you're going to be a calligrapher or the accordion player or you're a dancer or a singer. And you practice this skill every single day for your entire childhood. Done. That's it. So I would ask questions like, well, what if I don't want to play the accordion? I want to be a dancer. And, of course, they told me, yeah, of course you can switch. But, you know, I don't think it's like you can just decide on Wednesday you don't want to be the accordion player anymore. There may be a chance that you can switch, but not without some level of grave difficulty to do so. So at first when you go there, you're like, oh, this is so great. This is an after-school program. This is what they tell you in the beginning. Anyone can go. So you have something to do after school. It's all free. Socialism is awesome. The great leader rocks. And then you come to understand, no, 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 this is demanded. They must go here. Uh, they play the accordion every single day for five hours for their entire childhood. Then they're marched up on stage to give performances for tourists. That's it. Or for the party leaders. This is their life. No freedom. So it's a little bit of um, a sad experience when you start to understand. So the first time you go to the children's palace and you're, you're like, quote, unquote, peeking your head in to see them practicing and it's supposed to be spontaneous and you're just witnessing them, you know, practicing after school activities. And then you start to realize when you peek your head in and they break into song or a perfect routine that this is not the case at all, that they know you're coming, that your visit's been staged, that they've been practicing this routine probably four years waiting for the tourists to arrive, and then they do it perfectly. And probably if a mistake is made, they're in trouble. Wow, so it seems like it was very rare that you saw kind of a naturally spontaneous event. Like, when you were driving around from city to city, did you see any, like, kind of shantytown areas or really oh, yeah. poverty, impoverished areas? Young, yeah, well, first of all, that's why I kept a list of that might be real, because it's, like, little secret glances or my handler screaming, damn it, when the goal was missed. Like, those tiny little things... You do, I mean, humanity is humanity. People are people. So when the, you know, bus would stop and I happened to be at the same light and you'd see everybody crowding and pushing themselves onto the bus, that's a real moment. You know, that's human nature. I don't care what they extol the virtues of communism and socialism and, and the great leader shares everything. When the bus stops and people want to sit, that's human nature hmm. for everyone to push themselves onto the bus. But, um, you know, I... There was those kinds of real things, but generally speaking, everything is staged. So when you're driving down the highway or you're driving through the villages, the sex five seconds out of Pyongyang, it's almost like there's a brick wall. It goes from the clean, modern city of Pyongyang to holes. The whole rest of the country is third world. And arguably in Pyongyang, um, you know, there's all of the normal buildings that everyone lives in that are, for the most part, you know, look like they're from the 40s, 50s, 60s. They're very um, dim and dilapidated and so forth. And then there's a slew of beautiful modern buildings. But um, for when I could tell, they were all empty. They'll tell you the great leader built them for all the people as a gift to the people. And um, they're, I mean, they're, they're lovely. And they'll say it's nice apartments and people live there and they have shops and restaurants. But when you drive by them enough times and you can really peek in, you're stopping at the light and so forth, it's, they're empty. Now, was so, there any chance at all for you to see like a high up official or, or was that off the agenda? Um, you mean beyond just the military generals and such? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, I may have, but I wouldn't know. And um, military people everywhere. And you never felt any backlash from like North Korea declaring war on America while you were there? I don't think so because nobody would know. There's no access to any information. There's no newspaper? They have a newspaper, but the state media, the media is part of the Workers' Party, and it's declared by the law of, of the party that they can only report positive things. There's like a whole thing I read about online afterwards. And the newspapers aren't freely available. They're on stands, 
like in public places. So the people, you'll see them around the, on the corner, standing around a newspaper on a stand. I see. So and, they can't just pick up a newspaper and go. Oh, no, no. And the newspaper is completely controlled anyways, what's written. And the news is broadcast on the, you know, news, whatever that means. It's broadcast on radio and loudspeakers all around the villages and towns. And the televisions are programmed only because outside of my one hotel in Pyongyang, if there was a TV, it's only a couple stations and they're by the state. It's all propaganda and they're only broadcast for a certain number of hours a day. I mean, they literally have, there's no internet. It's state controlled television and radio and it's hardwired and they broadcast it around the city. There's no access to any information the state doesn't want them to have. And I believe that's the difference between North Korea and the other countries like Arab Spring, where there's uprising by the people. They're, they can't get like a quorum. You know, even if there's people who understand that it's up and know what's going on and want to make change and, and innately understand there's problems or have suspicions based on news they've heard from tourists or that's been passed around, you can't have an uprising when there's no way to communicate with one another. And no, no, no loitering no allowed. They're not allowed to, like, relax on a corner? There's no such thing. They work six days a week. After work, they're required to have go to party indoctrination, you know, sessions. They On Sundays, they have to volunteer, whether it's cutting the grass around, you know, by hand, by the way, because there's no lawnmowers, you know, around the statues of the great leaders or other volunteer, quote-unquote, volunteer projects. There's, you know, it's the whole thing is geared to make sure the leaders stay in power. How do people, like, uh, fall in love or date or anything? I asked, and they have, they told me, you know, again, this is just what my handlers told me, that they have love marriages and um, arranged marriages. So, um, Like your really... older handler, was she in a love marriage or an arranged marriage? My older handler told me that she was in a love marriage, but I don't know if it's true. I have no idea. And my younger handler told me she wasn't married yet and that her parents were putting a lot of pressure on her to be married. And how, how do they, how do they, um, how do you, how would they meet in a love marriage? I mean, I asked, how do you meet? Do you go to bars? She said, yes, there's no bars. There's, Is that how you meet people, Wendy? Yeah. <laughs> yes, in the state-run bar. The government provides for me. It's how I meet people. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess the government, I have no idea. That wasn't an area that they, you know, talked to me a ton about. I tried to fix my young handler up with one of the nice generals at the DMZ, but I was told he was married. Ah, uh, okay. So, but but she was intrigued or no? Yeah, she said he was cute. That one on my shit is real list. Ah, that's funny. It seemed like you bonded <laughs> a little more with the younger handler. She was nicer. The older handler, I think, um, you know, we had. I, well, as an example, when I asked my older handler, who, by the way, was younger than me, if she wanted to ask me anything she could in the entire world about America, and she asked me uh, what hard currency was and if the Chinese uh, money was hard currency. So I think she was a little business-minded. And she also asked me at the last day, second to last day, if she opened a business, if I would invest in it. So she may have been suffering a little bit of envy seeing that I was having a life that she couldn't. I think she was a complicated character, my older one. That's interesting about the investing in a business. Like, how would she even know the concept of investing in a business? It was just totally a capitalist concept. Well, that's why I think she was having conflict, because she's the one who had the husband that's a diplomat. And I think that she's in that position as a tour, a tour guide, because obviously she was very high up, and in a social class and also being very loyal to the party, which had landed her in this position and in a good marriage, obviously, if he's a diplomat and so forth. But, you know, those people are probably the most conflicted in the saddest. They have to be as the country opens up more because they know what they're missing. I mean, this and is has she ever left? I mean, obviously, her husband's left the country if he's a diplomat, but has she ever left the country? She told me she had. And then I heard later from somebody um, – that is part of the um, tour company in China, that she had left the country um, for plastic surgery, which is terrible in telling this. So she really, um, really must know what she's missing. What, then, what kind of plastic surgery? Like breast upliftment? Or? <laughs> I think she got an eye job. I'm, really, I'm going to hell now. I'm going to, after this call, I'm going to hell. So um, An she, eye job, though? I don't get it. Like, what is an eye job? Like an eye lift. You know, when you get old, wrinkled. Ah. 
out of all the plastic surgeries one could get, <laughs> like, why would she get that? I don't know. I never even asked her. I didn't even know until I got home. <laughs> but the point is that I think, you know, you know, maybe she really understands that there's a different life out there. And she talked to me a lot about how before she was a tour guide, she was a businesswoman. And that now she wants to be a businesswoman again. And maybe I represent this life that she's not having or that is threatening to, you know, when you're in a marriage and uh, somebody, your friend gets divorced and it sort of calls your whole marriage into question like, because suddenly somebody's or somebody quits their job and everybody around them thinks, oh, f should I quit my job? You know, I think that's kind of what was happening to her a little bit. And, you know, but in her position, she can't really question her life. What's she going to do? Her husband and her are going to run away. Maybe her husband really likes his life there. I, you know, and this is all, again, supposition, but she seemed to have kind of a love-hate relationship with me. Like she sort of was very interested to know more, but kind of hated me at the same time. Well, and also and, she has to be careful of her job. Like, her job is to keep you under control. So Exactly. And she's being watched. Everybody's watching everybody. And how did you get? How did you get a sense of that? Like, who was watching her? Well, like for example, when we were um, right outside of Pyongyang and some town, the name of which I can't remember, uh, I was taking pictures um, one day, uh, and I was sort of uh, pretending that I, we were in Pyongyang. I was trying to take pictures of these military men, so I was kind of pretending to take a picture of the trees while I was taking a picture of the men. And somebody else came running over to my handlers to tell them that what I was doing. And uh, then I, when I said to my handler, are you in trouble? Am I in trouble? And she's like, oh, no, no. He was just commenting on you know, blah, blah, some stupid lie. So, and then I also met um, a man from Brussels who was a tour guide liaison, and he had been to North Korea maybe eight times and told me that everybody's watching everybody all the time. And the reason that there's two handlers is so that one handler can't be compromised or bribed by the tourist. Ah, like they're actually there watching one another. So, but when so you're there, you're not really necessarily aware of this unless you pay attention. So now when you were leaving, um, and, and you, you mentioned to me earlier, you stayed there longer basically than any tourist like you were there for for quite a bit of time and most people in the guides even commented to you that this was longer than tourists usually stay yeah most tourists from what i understand stay three days or five it's unusual to stay as long as i did but not unheard of just not 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 normal and when you were leaving like did anything unusual happen did the tour guides hug you <laughs> like what happened when you were leaving it's funny you ask that because um i had spent 10 days almost you know 18 hours a day with these people and um i had wondered at had we bonded at all was there any relationship that had formed and you know at one point during the trip when we were all um in mount yang or someplace and we uh were having that this clam barbecue that was a whole disgusting mess and we were drunk that night together and we had been talking about how we would miss each other and and um so the last day at the airport and I had really bonded with my driver over bugs and some other stupid stuff. So um, I had expected sort of like a hug or a goodbye of some sort, like some kind of expression of emotion. And instead, when we arrived at the airport, my driver got out. He looked at me and he's like, bye. That was it. He, he barely even said goodbye to me. Wow. And then my handlers walked me in and I gave him a tip and some presents. And they, they like, stood there at attention, and they, like, they waved. And they said bye. <laughs> that was it. Did they, did they take the presents? Yeah. Okay. And then on the plane <laughs> back, empty or same thing? No, it was strange. It was full. It was full of uh, teenage boys. Teenage boys? Yeah. Just people who were teenage boys who were visiting North Korea? Maybe it was, like, a, the soccer team that you saw. No, I think there was North Koreans going to China, but I don't know why. Huh, interesting yeah. and scary. Yeah, yeah, they were rowdy. Uh, so I want I want to um, switch gears a second, and and this is sort of you going to North Korea is kind of like part of this bigger vision you have for your life, which is you're essentially traveling to every country in the world. And how many countries have you been to so far? Mm, it depends on how you you know what constitutes a country in your mind, but maybe like um, I don't know, eighty six, seven, something like that. What could possibly 
changed my mind about what a country is. Because not some things are territories, some things are countries, but then they don't they're not countries anymore. Like Iraq is breaking apart right now, for example. You know, things like that. Have you been to Iraq? No. Okay. So so <laughs> What what could what could um what could heighten the bar like what could be more intense now than going to North Korea? Are you Iraq should be next? <laughs> yeah, my mom will have a heart attack. Um, I don't know. It's not you know I don't go places because they're dangerous. I'm just going places because they're interesting to me. And what what so, makes what makes a country interesting to you? Like what will what will uh, and and again it's sort of like you know not everybody can take off. And go to like all these different countries. Like, how did and this is this has kind of happened over a period of fifteen, twenty years, where you've sort of like I feel like you've kind of gone to more and more countries per year, and you travel more and more often. It's almost like all of your free time you travel. Like, how have you kind of moved towards a life where where you could do this? Because I think a lot of people would dream to do this, but they sort of feel like no, I can't. I have to go back to my cubicle job or whatever. Like, how 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 have you come to this? this desire to travel everywhere? Well, it's a number. I mean, first of all, I've always loved traveling, and I've had travel bugs since I was a child. You know, I've been traveling my whole life. You're right. I've been traveling more as a grown-up, but that's because I can. You know, I have the ability to do so. Um, but I've loved traveling ever since I was very small and would travel with my family. And, I, you know, my earliest memories truly are being hysterical crying on the plane when it was time to come home. So it's something that I've always had a passion for. I grew up in Washington, D.C. with diplomats surrounding me, and I've always loved, you know, the knowing about foreign countries and learning about foreign countries and having friends from other places. And so it's been a passion of mine my whole life. And, you know, I think anyone can travel. I, I worked really hard. Um, you know, I've always been someone who does their homework before they go outside and play. So I worked really hard in my 20s. And... and um, Instead of taking a gap year or doing what people do where they kind of do all or nothing, I've always tried to just integrate it. So I took a year abroad when I was in school or in the summers when I was young. Instead of going to camp every year, I went you know, to Mexico to the family of the diplomat that lived next door. Or I've always tried to find a way to integrate it. And um, as I've gotten older, it's just you're right. I mean, anytime I had a vacation or – the chance to go someplace instead of going back to the same beach house, I would take the opportunity to travel. And the secret to it really is I spend the time and the money to go. You know, I think a lot of people save both, and I don't. I, so, you know, so like rather the life than I have. like uh, like this is ba- basically you buy experiences instead of uh, material goods. For the most part, yeah. I mean, this is. The life I have right now, I'm, you know, not good. I'm healthy now, I, and I can go, so I do. So, so, right. so, Wendy, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I want to kind of point people out to you have a great site of your photographs, uh, wendysimmonsphotography.com, and Simmons is S-I-M-M-O-N-S. So, wendysimmonsphotography.com. You are you're also at Wendy Simmons on Twitter, so I encourage people. Mm, oh, to... I'm never on Twitter. I don't ever go. I'm so sorry. Sorry. Oh Twitter. yeah, I see. The last time you were there was December. But you're also <laughs> uh, Wendy Simmons on Facebook. So yeah. some way or other, people should be able to uh, can probably reach out and ask you more questions if they're dying to know about about North Korea. I notice on on your photography site, I'm seeing it right now. You have a, a couple of photographs of people getting married, and they don't seem really happy about it. No. Well, I was generally crafting their weddings, so that was probably the part of it. And um, I don't think, I think weddings are not so much celebratory as they are perfunctory. You know, the guests would kind of arrive in their work uniforms. And the the wedding, one wedding um, with the, the fake birds in the, you know, little thing on the table, that wedding was at 1 o'clock on, like, a Thursday, and the other wedding was maybe it's not the normal time Tuesday. for a wedding. No, no, it's business as usual. Everything is business. You know, it's not, it's not a really jubilant society. Do you think the women are virgins until they get married? <laughs> I, I don't know. Probably some of them. Maybe some of them aren't. I, you know, I think there's a uniformity to the thinking and the culture, but there's always people who are doing their own thing everywhere you go. 
Well, well, Wendy, once again, thanks thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really was curious about what happened in North Korea, and I'm glad you got out of there safely. And also, I think it's really inspirational. You pick a place and you go there. Like, you know, whatever the next place is, I hope you stay safe and uh, don't I'm actually leaving hard. Friday. Uh, what did you say? I'm leaving Friday for my next trip. Where are you going? Indonesia. Indonesia. Okay, yeah. Be safe there. That's not really uh, the most American-friendly <laughs> country either. Uh, I think it's pretty good. So. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.